Welcome to the O'Reilly Podcast. I'm Jeff Blyle. This podcast episode is part of a collaboration between O'Reilly and Mesosphere. Today's podcast features a conversation between Chris Gaughan, Kubernetes Product Marketing Manager at Mesosphere, and Kelsey Hightower, Developer Advocate for Google Cloud Platform at Google. Kelsey is also the co-author of the O'Reilly book, Kubernetes Up and Running, and he's a program chair for OzCon, O'Reilly's open source convention. And now, our conversation about serverless and Kubernetes with Chris Gaughan and Kelsey Hightower. Chris, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. And Kelsey, thank you very much for joining us. Awesome. Glad to be here. Well, we're going to have Chris mostly take the lead here as far as posing some questions and getting some of Kelsey's opinions and experiences. But our first topic, we wanted to start with serverless. And why don't I just start with the real basic things? And Kelsey, actually, serverless is a technology that you've been using and talking about lately. Can you give us a brief outline of what is serverless? I, well, I guess my personal experience and definition would be it's this evolution from PaaS, Platform as a Service. And in Platform as a Service, we landed on a model where people would write these stateless 12-factor applications, kind of Heroku and App Engine were early entries there, including Cloud Foundry. And people really kind of focused on their application and deployed them to a platform. But you were still responsible for writing a lot of the logic in terms of saving up an HTTP server, handling a request, connecting to a message queue. And then when we talk about serverless, most people think of that in terms of compute and functions as a service. So instead of writing all of that boilerplate code, we reduce that down to a function and have the platform itself call your function on demand, usually triggered by some event in the system. So if you're on a cloud provider, someone uploads a file to some storage bucket that will trigger your function to be called. And given that you no longer have maybe as much control as you had with even FAS or PaaS, now you're kind of relying on managed services for everything, right? So fully managed databases where you just put your database into some database, fully managed CDNs, all of these external services that you then kind of glue together with your functions. That's interesting. And you said that, I guess, today that any use case or application that you could think about writing, you were able to do with functions. But I imagine that included the the managed services, the cloud managed services that you were using as well, correct? Yeah, so exactly. So when you start to look at the serverless thing, and it's funny, most people center the discussion on containers versus functions or, you know, Cloud Foundry versus Lambda. And that's really a very narrow way to look at it. It's really about saying, given, I think, if you think about it, this whole serverless movement and this whole functions as a service thing is probably the first compute product to originate in the cloud, assuming that the cloud is there and you have all of these managed services across providers and SaaS offerings that all you really need to do these days is just serve up, you know, maybe your single page web app or host your mobile app on iOS or Android. And then you glue together all the backing services from a collection of providers. You've talked to other users, like I think there was a, a vacuum company that was using it almost exclusively. And I know others are using it like Expedia have something like 10 billion function calls a day. Is that how they're all using it? Are they all like leveraging these other managed services on the cloud and or are they setting up their own services? Like how, how are they using it? So when experience? I talk to people who are actually like in production managing it, it's a very pragmatic thing that they're doing. Most people look around and say, look, before we write any code, before we go find some open source project and deploy it and start running it ourselves, let's see what's out there. 
right? So if I need to get map coordinate, maybe use the Google Maps API. If I need to resize some images, maybe I go and find a service somewhere that if I give it an image, it gives me back all the resize images based on my uh, specification. So what you're starting to see, though, is all those companies are looking around. And if you look at the market, maybe one cloud provider doesn't provide everything. For example, Auth0 is a very uh, well-known used user authentication service where even if your code is running in, say, Google Cloud or AWS, you still may use Auth0 to handle the authentication for your customers. And the same is true for IoT, right? There's so many of these IoT gateways out there where in the case of, let's say, iRobot or you know, maybe someone else has a different project that they're working on, you can imagine having the initial traffic from your on-premise or on-the-edge device, sending it to an IoT gateway, and then invoking uh, just enough code to process the data coming in. So what I've seen is it more of, let's not write any code or manage anything unless we really, really, really have to. And that's how you end up with this serverless architecture. Mm-hmm. So it's mostly for, I guess, new endeavors. You, have you talked to anybody that's, you know, has an existing application that's out there that they say, oh, maybe we should try to move this to a service serverless architecture? So it's really, if you think about it, so I used to work in financial. And in finance, you may get a customer that you onboard. Let's say you're a loyalty rewards program and you're going to take on a new customer. And normally what that entails, and these are usually existing banks that are doing these kind of services, that normally entails you saying, hey, what is the data format that your transactions are captured in? And typically, that customer will send you an output and say, hey, here's a billion transactions from today or this week. We need you to process them and turn them into loyalty rewards. And the common approach usually has been you take your monolithic application that's doing this for all your other customers, and maybe you add a little bit more custom logic if they're not willing to standardize on one of your format to process their file. So what we used to do in even finance, you would make a one-off, right? Maybe you make a very small application that just was able to process that file. So if you move that into the service architecture world, and let's say you're maybe headed towards the cloud, you can imagine that customer uploading that file to something like S3 or Google Cloud Storage. Once it lands there, in your mind, the only thing left to do really is that when that file shows up, let me run this little bit of code, whether that code was in my Java application, in my monolith, or now existing companies are starting to say, hey, let's just run that in Lambda or Google Cloud Functions, if you will. And now you start to say, where do we want to run that snippet of code? And given this fact now that the workflows are kind of built in between these products, I upload this new file, we run our business logic, and then we push it maybe even back to the same Oracle database. So yes, I think it's always around net new things that we need. I haven't seen a lot of people porting, you know, let's say a microservices stack or a monolith necessarily to kind of this serverless architecture, but you do see people starting to use bits and pieces, meaning, hey, let's use Cloudflare for CDN. We don't manage any of that, Cloudflare does. Let's use a hosted DNS service for our high available DNS. So the industry has been moving in this direction for a very long time. We never called it serverless. We just called it managed services. Yeah. So it's more like when they're trying to expand the existing functionality of what they have and they need to find something new, like serverless might be the best place to look. And then, you know, some other cloud service that they could use, managed service that they could use in order to connect it to. Right. When mobile came out, most existing businesses had no mobile expertise. So you're like, hey, Mm -hmm. I need to have a mobile app 
but I don't understand all of the demands of mobile. Look how much data is being generated by these mobile endpoints. There's no way I can push all that to my existing data center. So I think mobile was that kind of, you know, that time when people started to look around and say, you know what, maybe we should just use Firebase for this piece. Maybe we should use Parse for this piece. And then you kind of start to see this explosion of, we're not going to build every service. Think about the App Store, right? You don't manage the App Store. You write your code and you throw it in the App Store, which is managed by a third-party provider. So I think this has been in transition for about a decade. Kelsey, Chris pointed out uh, to me a tweet that, that you uh, that you sent out recently uh, where you, you, you led with, uh, I've increased my usage of serverless fast platforms and I'm convinced I'm missing something. Um, I wanted to ask if you might be able to kind of give us a little more uh, expansion on that and whether this points to whether your uh, perception of serverless has changed since you started using it. Um, I would say I didn't have a educated perception of serverless, right? So I'm, I'm in the camp of if I've never used it, then I definitely don't know what I'm talking about, right? That's, that's the way I take it. So <laughs> what I've done and what I like to do is I have to use it. So, and I'm also one of those people that likes to learn in public, right? So if I'm getting started with something and I'm confused, I'll usually kind of throw a thought out there. And that tweet in particular, you know, I think I've spent now at Google, I've been months helping build out some of our serverless capabilities. And this week in particular, I've restricted myself to only using Google Cloud Functions on purpose. Like I'm going to do everything with it that I need to do. And I started adding things like advanced logging, advanced tracing, even though we have a lot of that stuff built in, you can't really do detailed stuff until you start to instrument inside of your own function itself. So I start to look at this once I make it really robust, lots of error handling. Then you start to look at it and say, wow, this is very close to the same amount of code that I was writing when I was building maybe, let's say, a container, right? Some aspects are definitely different. So I start to ask myself, so if this isn't the end game, if it isn't the function going to solve all of my problems in terms of, in terms of the code I need to write, what am I missing? So I was missing something. What I was missing is that the people who are actually using these function platforms, they're not just choosing the function platform because they want to write less code. They're choosing these function platforms because they don't need to think about, let's say, um, using a particular web framework because they will never have to configure that web framework. Their function handler is going to be called by the platform. So now you start to say, okay, we're just going to focus only on what the request, how it needs to be handled when it shows up. And the rest of it is all managed services. So what I was missing was serverless architectures is probably 95 plus percent about managed services. And you only write functions when you have to. That gets me into, I think the core of the, maybe the misunderstanding, or maybe it is an actual competition uh, between Kubernetes containers and serverless. Do you, do you feel that there is a competition there? Is it still different tools in the toolbox for different use cases now that you've used and you know have ample experience using both? Yeah, the only competition really is just like any collection of tools in a toolbox. They are there to be used, right? So if you as a developer or ops person, you have a problem to solve, all of these tools are competing for your attention, right? They're only there to be used. I forget the selling and marketing aspects of it all. Let's just think pragmatically about the purpose of any tool existence is to be used. So let's say you have a simple problem. You want to process a file upload. That's all you want to do. File gets uploaded. You want to process it and put in a database. Now, from a pragmatic point of view, ideally, you should write as little code as possible regardless of the platform that you're using. 
So now that you have this new tool in your tool belt, aka the function, Lambda, Google Cloud function, and you look at the docs and it says, well, write these 40 lines of code and we'll call your function when the file shows up. You don't have to worry about getting the right instance size or how long it's going to be running. Put the code here and it will run. So then that becomes maybe the better tool for the job. Now, if you want to do some machine learning where you need a custom GPU or you really do care about how much SSD space you have, functions as a service isn't designed to do that. So therefore, the obvious tool choice then becomes something like Kubernetes or even just a VM. And I think that's what the competing competition really is. The developer now has a choice and more choices to do things to get the job done. Yeah, and just getting to the other maybe criticism of serverless um, that you hear uh, analysts or others in the community might talk about. And I even thought about it when I saw your application today or the other day on, on Twitter. When it's all fully built out using all these managed services, it does look a little bit like cloud firm, firmware, right? Where it's completely embedded in a cloud provider. Do you, do you feel that that's a valid criticism or, you know, does it even matter at this point? Are we just, you know, people decide their cloud providers, they're going to use that cloud provider, you know, they could write to that cloud provider or what, yeah, I think, you know, what abstraction yeah, I think should be there? Yeah, so you're right. The whole thing is abstraction. There's hardware everywhere. If you buy, let's say, Red Hat and you want support, then you got to pay Red Hat. It ain't that cheap either. If you want, yeah. Yeah. If you want to work with containers, then you got to ramp up on Kubernetes and your time ain't cheap. If you want to just deploy a small bit of business logic, then you have to use something or you can use something like Lambda or Cloud Functions. So now what you're starting to see is that, yes, all of these platforms do leverage the thing that they're built on top of. So if you want to start from scratch, go to the store and buy a server and netboot it or pixie boot it and put an OS on it and then install Kubernetes and then install a function framework and then deploy your app. Listen to all those steps. You're like, uh, no, that's not what everyone is trying to do, right? And we had even more business critical systems delegated to the world. For example, DNS. I know very few people left that are managing DNS servers. Email. Most people are not managing their email servers. So we're already in this world where we've already started delegating very important computing tasks to these services. So yes, you're right. The new application server, if you will, has become the cloud provider. Because I think that's also necessary, just like internet access. Most people haven't run their own fiber from their house to the internet backbone. To make it accessible to everyone, you have ISPs. Yeah. And, and for those that might be, you know, might want another abstraction there, have you tried any of the serverless or functions as a service that work on Kubernetes yet? There's a few out there. There's OpenWhisk, there's Fusion, there's Kubeless. None seem to be a, a real winner. Open that seems to have the most stars on GitHub, but barely, you know, maybe three, four X more. Have you tried any of those? Have you, what, do you have any thoughts or opinions on how they work or are they easy to get up and running? No. Do they yeah, so they actually do a pretty good job. So if you think about it, there's Nucleo, there's OpenWIS, the ones you've named. There's also this new native project from Google. And what they're attempting to do is say, look, if we now have something like Kubernetes, which handles all the distributed system parables, gives us a mechanism for logging and metrics. But the interface to Kubernetes for some people, you have to create these YAML files, right? One for your deployment, you have to build a container. But if you look at it, 
most people are constructing the exact same configuration. They're building their containers the exact same way. And they also just want to handle maybe one specific piece of logic. So if you're okay with that pattern, then we can actually layer on some tooling to encapsulate that pattern and give it a name, OpenFast, right? If all you want to do is handle a web request, then yeah, OpenFast is going to be fine, right? It will run right on top of Kubernetes. And why is this important? Well, if you have a Kubernetes cluster already, or you actually have workloads that don't fit well in a function-as-a-service platform, then adding one of these open-source function framework just allows you to easily diversify the type of users who can use that platform. So then you become the service provider. So if you have Kubernetes, that's your base layer. Some of your users will use kubectl. Some of them are going to want a serverless-like experience. And if you combine all of these open-source functions as a framework tool with the rest of these managed services, you get 95% there. You just happen to be managing kind of the function layer yourself, which means now you're responsible for scaling, which could introduce a challenge if you're not doing that well. And then just to close out this topic on serverless, do you have people come to you for advice on Kubernetes and I'm sure now serverless? Do you have any words of wisdom of when to use one tool versus the other? Is it more just on a case-by-case basis or are there general guidelines that you could give? Yeah, I think as engineers, we have all kind of reasons that go into why we pick something. Some people really value portability and they know how to leverage portability, right? Some people talk about lock-in and they talk about all these things, but they don't know how to leverage if they were to avoid locking in, be locked into something. Some people are locked into open source projects, right? They can't move from mm-hmm. Postgres because they're using a bunch of custom Postgres extensions. So they're kind of locked in. So hopefully they're getting the right leverage from it. So my advice to people is this, like if you have an existing application and maybe you are using something like Spring Boot and all these things, and you're just looking for a slightly better way to manage and deploy it, Kubernetes is a great obvious next step from VM into a world where you have a little bit more orchestration. And in many ways, it's kind of like prep work before you can start to think about higher levels of abstraction. So I would tell any engineers, like, well, why boil the ocean? If you can just move one layer up and get 75% of the benefit, hey, go in that direction. But don't be, don't ignore the new tool. So if you see Lambda, you see Cloud Functions, you say, well, what makes sense for me to use? Maybe go out and prototype. If you hear a new piece of functionality come down the pipe, maybe you try it out there, but don't be afraid to back out of your decision. That's all I, that's the only advice I have. If you think you want to go all in on Lambda because it's the new shiny and everyone's screaming serverless, hey, go there, but make sure you think about when the decision wasn't the right one, right? There was a recent story floating around the interwebs about someone using Lambda and their bill got to like 30K because of API Gateway. They rewrote the app, moved it to Kubernetes, and now they're at 300 bucks a month. Okay, that's a good thing to think about. And I'm glad that they had the maturity to understand when maybe they chose or were using the wrong platform for a specific use case. Well, let's talk about the future and what you both see uh, as far as the use of Kubernetes. What's, what's the biggest issue that people run into when they decide they will start using Kubernetes, especially not as part of a test, but in situations where it's more widely deployed into production? Uh, Kelsey, let's start with you. I think people underestimate what they're getting into. For example, everyone that uses Linux today, especially people that have been using it for 10 years, they seem to forget how hard it is to learn Bash, how to provision it, all those config files, systemd, 
there's so many things you would have to learn. And it's been taking 10 years just learning how to manage a single machine well. You introduce Kubernetes and people are looking for the five-minute to expert experience. And that's not going to happen. So if you really want to run a Kubernetes cluster yourself and handle its upgrades over time, then you're going to have to learn those six or seven moving pieces to Kubernetes, how they work, how they interplay, how they break. That's going to take you years. That's not going to be a five-minute thing. Now, some people do have access to things like maybe Google Container Engine where it's fully managed on top of a cloud provider. So you click the button. But just because you click the button doesn't mean you don't have to learn all the configuration files of Kubernetes and how they relate to each other. So I think people underestimate the learning curve to get proficient and to be able to extract the maximum value from Kubernetes. Yeah, I've, I've seen that as well. Like, for instance, when people are just starting out, they'll typically use some configuration management tool or use Minikube. They'll get a few things up and running. They'll say, well, it works. It works as expected. I could actually scale this pod. And then they, you know, try to go to the next steps. And, you know, it's quite difficult, especially, you know, I think we could talk about on the security side. Um, you know, even if you have been using Kubernetes for a few years, like I just set up a cluster on a public cloud provider by myself using DIY tools and they got hacked by someone in another country, probably used for Bitcoin mining. And it was, you know, it was my fault. It was open to the internet. The dashboard was running. So someone probably went to the dashboard or went directly to the kubeless and did an API call. But they got Bitcoin mining on there and I had a $1.4,000 bill that I had to pay or still have to pay. It just happened last month. So I, I think people do underestimate the, you know, the effort to get it up and running, to get it up and running properly, to get it secured, um, to teach everybody within the organization how to use it. It's not, it's not trivial. So on, on that, given that I did get recently hacked on the Kubernetes front, Kelsey, is there some, I guess, advice that you give people on how to lock down their Kubernetes clusters? You know, what are the things that as soon as you're using Kubernetes that you should do to sort of protect yourself? from, you know, Bitcoin miners that are out there? Yeah, so it's funny. It's like there are people who, um, I remember people learning MySQL for the first time. And to make it easy to use, they would also expose it over the internet. And who needs authentication, right? That's just another hurdle. So, you know, you got your database on the public internet with no authentication. Like this is now we're getting to just security 101. Like forget Kubernetes. Do not put anything on the internet without it lock, being locked down. And even if you do that, you still want to add that other layer, maybe like a firewall to limit the number of people who can exploit software bugs, right? Because it's not the fact that you just have authentication. It's the fact that there, if there's any software vulnerabilities or bugs floating around, then your endpoint is out there to be exposed. And I think that's just a thing that I think some people have forgotten to do because of this whole five minutes to excellent. I think what you got to do is understand that all of that stuff that we had to do to lock down every other compute platform still remains true even with Kubernetes. And maybe more to your point is that, remember, Kubernetes is like you being your own cloud provider. It abstracts away the ability to create load balancers. It abstracts away the ability to create volumes and execute code on any of your machines. So if that's what's going on, and someone gains access to your Kubernetes API. So in the database situation, they steal your data and maybe run some store procedure. In Kubernetes, 
They can deploy databases, mine Bitcoin, turn servers on and off depending on the privileges you allow in your cluster. So the blast radius of what you can do when you compromise someone's Kubernetes account is very close to what you do if you compromise someone's cloud account. And for those that are out there listening, uh, there was a recent Newstack article where they did an investigation with the help of, I think, SysDig and a few other vendors. But there's 20,000 container management UIs exposed to the internet out there. What, what do you think there's that many? Is it just people using these configuration management scripts that they're finding, like some random, random you know, script to get this up and running? They use it, it's there, and they don't think about it? Or... Like, well, how can there be 20,000 <laughs> UI yeah. into the internet? Yeah, I think, yeah, it's exactly what you said. It's like people find a tool because we, we really optimize for this five-minute experience, right? So you find these tools and they'll do something like, hey, run this command and you're going to get a cluster. And some will even say you'll get a production-ready cluster in five minutes. So people run it and they're like, wow, this is great. And maybe there is a little bit of basic authentication or maybe to make it easy, they turn authentication off by default, but maybe expose the dashboard that doesn't have any authentication to the public internet to make it easy for the user to test. So you end up in a situation where, yeah, maybe the API server is locked down, but then you open up this big back door with a dashboard. So this is why, for example, I have this guy called Kubernetes the Hardaway. And in the Hardaway, I don't install the dashboard. And I make you do all the security stuff up front, right? You have to create all the SSL certificates. You have to lock down the master. You have to lock down all your endpoints. You have to do all of these things. And I try to explain to you, here's why we're doing client off this way. Here's why we're turning off this thing. Here's why we're enabling this thing. So I expect people that you have to learn stuff first before you just throw it out on the internet. And I think that's why you see 20,000 of these things. People launch them, forget about them, or, you know, don't think that there's any harm that can come from leaving open a Kubernetes cluster. Yeah, and I would highly suggest that people go through that that GitHub and learn that and go through all the steps, even though it might take a, you know, they might have to set uh, some time uh, aside. Because even if you do know it, you know, I do, I was just setting up a cluster for research and development. I got hacked and now I have a huge, <laughs> huge bill that I have to pay. So moving on, uh, have you tried any of the tools that are now being used on top of Kubernetes, like the next level experience, the sort of frameworks that are available on Kubernetes. Uh, one I think about is Kubeflow, which I actually gave a presentation on last KubeCon in, in uh, Copenhagen. Uh, have you used Kubeflow or any of these tools? Do you like them? I haven't used Kubeflow, but I've used things like Argo, which is kind of like a workflow tool, right? It gives you ability to execute and build um you know, DAGs of jobs. So you can say, hey, run this job. People use it for CICD. People use them to build um, data processing pipelines. So I see this explosion of like workflow tools on top of Kubernetes. Things like Istio also fall in that category. Yeah, it's service mesh, but it also leverages Kubernetes as a control plane so that it can actually do all this networking capabilities, inject sidecars. So we're starting to see what we call these um, services that are built on top of the Kubernetes API machinery. And that's the case where you take custom resource definitions. So Kubernetes comes with things like deployments and services, config maps and secrets. The Kubernetes can also be extended in a way where you can teach it new things like um, Kubeflow definitions or Argo definitions. Here's how you run a set of containers in a certain order. Retry this one if it fails. All of those can be articulated as custom resource definitions. And now we're starting to see an explosion of tools 
coming out on top that just leverage all the goodness of Kubernetes underneath. So how do you imagine that split up as far as who does what in an organization in the future? Is there going to be, you know, someone managing the Kubernetes cluster or, you know, whatever they're using in order to get Kubernetes? And then there'll be experts in Kubeflow to set that up and get that up and running on a Kubernetes cluster. And that's used by the data scientists. What's, what's the split? So ever since I've been in tech, the goal has always been the same. If a developer checks in code that's ready to go and the test pass, an integration test pass, right? All the things you do to certify that that code should go to the next stage, whether it's staging, QA, or production. The goal has always been to provide that interface. That's it. That's the end game. Check in code, run tests, and it deploys to some target, whether that's a VM, JBoss, Kubernetes, or Lambda. Doesn't matter. That has always been the goal. The unfortunate thing we've done in the industry is we started leaking all the implementation details to the people who should be focusing on the business piece, right? And there's a way you can do this and share responsibility. For example, as a developer, I can build in health check endpoints into my app, therefore making it easier to monitor my service. But I shouldn't necessarily be the one having to set up the monitoring service. So I think what Kubernetes does is it makes a better contract that the person or team that's setting up the Kubernetes cluster has a much better handoff point than we did with virtual machines, right? You stand up VMware and you hand off a virtual machine to a developer. Now they got to go get Puppet or something else to get it to the point you can use it. Everything you just talked about was workflow, right? Kubeflow, I want to do some ML. Great. Here's a endpoint or set of definitions where you can execute your tasks. Don't worry about Kubernetes. So in the future, I think what we're going to get to is a group of people will either serve as a provider at your organization, maybe you're on-prem, and you're going to install Kubernetes yourself. And then you're going to either A, expose the raw Kubernetes API, or move into a situation where you're using something like Kubeless or any of these serverless add-ons or something like Kubeflow and start giving people different workflow APIs. And then you're going to start to feel a little bit more like a managed service provider. And I think that's the way to go. With, with that, since you since you mentioned Istio as something that, you know, works on with and on top of Kubernetes as well, can you talk about more about Istio, what it is? Some people might not know, you know, have heard of it before, even though it's extremely popular within the internet. And then yeah, so if, the maturity of it. Okay. Yeah, so Istio announced 1.0 recently. Uh, but for a little bit of transparency, all of the Istio APIs, for the most part, are considered alpha, meaning their definitions are subject to change. It's kind of like the phase that Kubernetes went through. Istio is built mm-hmm. on top of Envoy. And if you think about what Envoy does, it's, you know, most people consider it as a replacement for something like Nginx or HA Proxy, but with a fully programmable API and it's fully open source, you know, no commercial version backing it. But when you look at the use case people have with something like Envoy, inside of a Kubernetes cluster, you can use it as a load balancer. So you put it in your cluster and it can become the gateway to all the other containers, you know, host-based routing, those kind of things. And then the other thing people like Envoy for is attaching one Envoy instance per instance of your application. And that's when you start to get into the service mesh territory, right? If each of my apps has a load balancer fronting it on its own, then I can do application-level configuration. This app gets this rate limit setting. This app gets this identity that's being processed by the load balancer. And then I can also do other things like make sure that any communication coming from my container into it and out of it 
always goes through Envoy. But you need a way to program all of those load balancers if you're going to have thousands of them to go with your app. And that's where this control plane comes in, the pilot taking configurations, Kubernetes definitions, and turning them into Envoy configs for simplification, uh, a piece that automatically mints certificates for your apps and pushes them down. And this final component called the mixer, where these sidecars Envoy running next to your app is pushing metrics and tracing data. And the mixer allows you to map that data to something like Datadog, Relic, or Stackdriver. And when you put all that together, all of those pieces in, in that way of working, that's Istio. Yeah, and for those of you that don't know, uh, CNCF is um, the host of Envoy. It's a open source project in the CNCF. And it actually originally came out of Lyft, I believe. Yeah, if you watch the original presentation by Matt Klein and explaining why they originally came up with this, it's, it's because they had, you know, DynamoDB and MongoDB, they started out with one, they grew to the other. All of a sudden, they had services running all over the place and, and no real way of having this fine-grained control over them. And so that's why they were, he and his group originally came up with Envoy and Istio and Service Mesh. Okay, now that we talked about Kubernetes and Istio and all the other stuff that you can run on Kubernetes, it seems that you know maybe the complexity is getting compounded or you know we're trying to remove complexity. There was one person that mentioned on Twitter that it took a, you know, they skipped over a Kubernetes project because they felt that it took maybe six months and a cost of 1 million in engineering time. And they weren't even guaranteed a Kubernetes cluster once that was, that effort took place. So how, how can an organization limit and reduce these pitfalls? How can they make it not into a boondoggle, into an actual program that they could get executed, that they could run these um, Istio and the rest of the services that they want to run on Kubernetes effectively. See, this, this, there's so many dependencies to that because it depends on the organization. It depends on who's doing the work. For example, if you gave me five servers, I can install Kubernetes on five servers in about an hour by myself. I don't even want to do anything else. I know how to program a Cisco switch. I know how to connect VLANs together. I can do it by myself. I got it. I can pixie boot them the whole night. But that's not everyone. And we don't expect everyone to be able to do that. So what we have to do, that also plays a role in how much money you spend tracing these things. So if I were in an enterprise and we said we wanted Kubernetes and we want to do it on-prem, remember, on-prem, think about all the pain people went through with OpenStack, all the pain people went through with even VMware, all the pain people went through even with just Linux and just application servers like JBoss. That the only common variable there is that company. They're the ones having this problem installing any software that comes down the pipe. So if you know that's you, then you know that maybe your organization doesn't necessarily have everything in place or there's a mix and match of legacy. A lot of times what I see, most companies are not giving their engineers enough time to really learn what the scope of the challenge is and then investing dollars to make sure they have everything they need to get the job done. It's more like get it done by Friday, and then that turns into we still don't have it in one year because you tried to rush the process. So to avoid they that... They tell them, I need a container, yeah, something, get it yeah, up and running. Yeah, you, you start to have these hacks. So I think the best route to go is like, look, Red Hat, Mesosphere, Docker, they all offer you know these Kubernetes solutions where at least there's a curated installer to say, look, here's our opinion on how to get Kubernetes up and running. 
right? If you do this, we will at least get you Kubernetes on a set of machines. Now, I can't turn you into a Kubernetes expert that way, but at least I can get you a Kubernetes endpoint to see if that is actually worth the worth your time to learning how Kubernetes works. So I think there's a way to get a head start. If you if you put a million dollars into something, you can put you could probably pay a fraction of that and maybe use one or more of these curated stacks to get off the ground. I also recommend that even if you're on premise, right, it still may be worth it to go to a cloud provider, use their free tier or their free credit, and maybe spin up a dev environment. Click the button, and in five minutes, more than likely you're going to get a production hardened cluster ready to go. And then maybe you say, hey, let's build a CICD flow on top of this. Let's see if our applications will run in this and see if this even makes sense for us at all before we invest in becoming Kubernetes cluster administrators. Let's see if we even want to be Kubernetes users first. Well, this has been a great conversation, and I want to thank both of you for, for all your insights. Chris Gaughan of Mesosphere, thank you very much. Thank you. And Kelsey Hightower of Google, thanks so much for joining us. Awesome. Pleasure to be here. And all three of us want to thank you very much for listening. For the O'Reilly Podcast, I'm Jeff Blyle.